Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. We're back for another summer, Jeff. Where it doesn't feel like it necessarily at the moment in the MCG car park where we've been reduced <laughs> to recording the, the first ever. I wouldn't say the first ever of a new season. We, we got a couple in the can during the UAE test matches back in October, but our first of the Australian summer and it's, uh, and it's blowing a gale and it's a bit cold, but tomorrow in Adelaide I'm sure all will be fine and all will be hot. Well, you know, when you're in Yarra Park you feel like you're close to the action. The spiritual home of cricket <laughs> here, the, the Melbourne Cricket Ground. But, you know, Adelaide's another spiritual home of cricket and I quite like the fact we're starting in Adelaide. We've been starting in Brisbane for as long as I can remember. It's nice to go somewhere else for a change. I've just come back from spending, must have been two and a half weeks in the Caribbean, so we'll start there. Uh, the Australian women having won the World T20, the first major trophy they've secured since 2014. And they were thrilled about it. I've seldom seen a team so happy to win a tournament because I think it, it meant more to them than, than simply that trophy alone. It was almost a validation of all the work they've done in the last two years to change the way they play their cricket. We interviewed Meg Lanning, I think it was before the semi-final, possibly the final, and her observation was that for too long they thought they could get away with playing at roughly 70% and still win because they could. They always had that gap in terms of capacity and ability, but with the rest of the women's cricket world catching up and that gap narrowing, they had to find an extra gear, and they did so by playing a far more aggressive brand of cricket and not in the way that um, we, we've been talking about aggressive <laughs> brands of cricket in the last eight or nine months, but, but the way they, they approached the game and took the game on. So, yeah, it was a, it was a triumph for the side in the short term, but also uh, recognition of what they've done in the last 12 to 18 months to get themselves right. Especially that India have become a bit of a bogey team for the Australian women's team in the last mm. few years. Um, knocked them off in a T20 series in Australia, which was unheard of before that. Knocked them off in the 50-over World Cup semi-final dramatically um, and then absolutely smashed them in the, the World T20 as well a couple of weeks ago. And at that point, it looked like India were, were odds-on to romp home for the title, but um, they, they found a way to bring themselves undone. Yeah, India didn't get over the line against England in the semi-final. I found it an endorsement of the of the Women's Big Bash League and the Kier Super League, not on the basis that they're the two leagues that are semi-professional and the other countries aren't quite there yet, although what's this space in the Caribbean Premier League? I gather we're not far away from a women's comp there and, and the women's IPL is surely coming down the pipeline too, but more because of the way that the batters in particular were able to adapt to a really slow pitch at Antigua, had to use their feet, use the depth of the crease, change their game plans on the spot, and that's what you can do with professionalism and the fielding standards from those two sides as well, um, in addition to the West Indies they were by far the three most effective in the field in the comp. Yeah, the interesting one is for me is looking at the two players in particular, Elisa Healy and Danny Wyatt, because both of them, even a couple of years ago, were, to be frank, not that good at batting. Like, they were, they were chancy. They might slog a good 20 once in a while off 10 balls, but um, didn't really have the record to back them up. The, the way they both go about it now, both opening the batting respectively for Australia and England, but being so crisp and so clean in the way that they strike the ball, the inside-out shots over cover, um, the, the leg-side shots are not Yahoo slogs, they're clinical and timed and placed. 
And these are the kind of players who are routinely making 50 off 30 balls at the top of the order and doing it because, because that professionalism, that ability just to concentrate on the game and nothing but even in the space of a couple of years, has just seen them leap dramatically in terms of what they can do. Um, Sophie Molyneux is another big bash prodigy, really. She started at age 17, played all three seasons so far, probably as much as an opening bat as she did a mm. left-arm spinner, but she's overtaken Jess Jonasson. No main feat, given that Jess Jonasson was ranked as the number one bowler in the world last year. And just about everyone in the Australian women's team opens the batting for their WBBL <laughs> side. They've got openers down to about, what, number nine? Oh, I think eight of them do, batting as, yeah. as opening bats in that comp, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it gives you an idea of the, the kind of spread of talent that they've got to be able to put into that Australian side. And it's also a vindication of professionalism the last couple of years. You know, the, the fact that the Australian team are, are on the best contracts in the world, it, they really should be winning these tournaments. And um, I think they were pretty hard on themselves that they didn't win the 50-over World Cup last year. Speaking of contracts, Jeff, on the episodes we did in the UAE, we promised a special, if you like, episode on the state of Australian cricket. We're sort of doing that today. What we're going to do in the second half of our conversation is discuss your book. Before we do that, we've, we've, got, uh, we've got an Australian Test summer coming up, um, only a few days away from mm. the start of that first Test match and um, the new look Australian team that, that no one's seen play yet and yet everybody's willing to have an opinion on. I found it instructive that Tim Payne was, was so forceful in his language uh, on Sunday in Adelaide when they arrived and saying he just doesn't want to talk about the culture stuff anymore and he's probably not going to get a choice. Culture wars uh, is, is usually a term reserved for political discourse in Canberra and we certainly have seen plenty of it in the last couple of years but it's, Jeff, almost where we're at at the moment, isn't it? There's a philosophical debate going on between those who think that there was something fundamentally amiss with the way the Australian side were preparing and playing their cricket, the men's team specifically, and, and those that think that there wasn't an awful lot wrong. It's just that some silly boys got caught out for one of a better sort of catch-all. Mm. feels as though we're going to continue duking this out, maybe not just over the coming months, but maybe the coming years. There is an 11 you know, who, who are tasked with the responsibility of playing cricket in whatever way they decide mm. is the best way to go about it. It's, it's a partly new look, partly old look, partly patched together sort of 11 that we've got. Marcus Harris is the most obvious and interesting inclusion, that opening batsman who's been the sort to just plug away for a few years and put good numbers together, but not really a trendy sort of pick, not someone who was ever threatening before. A slightly new way of picking a team. They've just gone, well, you've made runs in the shield, that's it, you're in. A lot of the, the culture review even talked about that, about the way the Shield has been um, uh, not marginalised, that's overstating it, but perhaps doesn't have the same currency it once did. Now Marcus Harris is almost showing through that long game process that you can still get to the Australian eleven that way. I think that's a, a really good price signal to the market more generally. Aaron Finch is someone who's got a lot to prove for me because... Basically, in his career, it's been about making 50s and, and not making big scores in first-class cricket. Yep. It doesn't really matter where he's batted. It doesn't really matter who he's played for. Um, that's what he, he did in the Test Series in the UAE. That's what he's done for Victoria in the middle order for a long time. He's well aware of it himself. But if he's... He talks about it all the time. Yeah. This is one of his main... Like Just to jump in there, this is something that he knows very well. It, 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 he always says that his numbers taken as a whole aren't too bad. Like He hasn't got a poor average. He gets a lot of starts. He rarely fails when playing first-class cricket, but it's going on and making hundreds and opening the batting for Australia on the opening day of a Test Series. like the, it, It's high stakes for him, I think, that Finch has waited so long. He's one of these guys, that, yeah, I think he debuted for Victoria 11 years ago, so 11 years between uh, making his first-class debut and, and getting a chance to play a Test match in Australia. Uh, a lot of people don't get that chance. I was thinking about it this morning. Cameron White never played a Test for Australia in Australia, and Glenn Maxwell probably never will. Um, if, you, if you work on the assumption that he's being KP'd out of the test side, and he probably is. Um, so the, uh, you know, Finch will know that 
this is it won't be like a, a test long leave pass you won't necessarily get to bat at the top of the list for six starts if he doesn't go well early on um, especially when he hasn't batted at the top of the list of Victoria very often at all so even though he, he looks like one of the more senior players in the team and he'll carry that responsibility he's almost still auditioning at the same time so it, it's an interesting um, little nexus for him in the next couple of weeks well it's interesting for both of those two because they've got Matt Renshaw sort of breathing down the back of yeah. both of their necks you know just made a triple hundred in um, first grade cricket uh, a couple of days ago which doesn't hurt you know it's not quite the same caliber of bowling but you don't see a lot of 300s going around in, in first grade you, you can say it's just grade cricket but grade cricket at, at the elite level first 11 so on and so forth isn't bad cricket there's mm. a, a lot of first class cricketers and and indeed international players that, that do plenty of work down there and it was the rate that he scored at too it was as though he was completely liberated he knew that he couldn't play test cricket in the short term um, hasn't had a great start far from it for Queensland he's got one more shield game before the break the big bash um, interval which actually as it happens was what helped him rehabilitate his summer last year he had Almost an identically poor start to the Shield season. Missed out on the Ashes. Um, struggled through to Christmas and then got a chance to um, play with the Brisbane Heat. Didn't play a lot of cricket, but he said to me at the time that it was the work he did in the nets with the Heat which um, got him used to scoring again. And it's as though he sort of jumps forward one step in the process by, I think, the, the strike rate of... He went at 127. Uh, it was his strike rate in making 345. And, I mean, as we know, the bigger the score, usually the slower the strike rate. Right. So uh, that, that, was, that adds to... It gives you a sense of the fact that, yes, his shield scores aren't much chop at the moment, but it doesn't mean he can't play. And also, he's got gears. You know, the, the idea that all he, he'll do is leave the ball for you know four hours at a time is um, not entirely accurate. Yeah, and again, that, that's another point that he's made too. That. Uh, last year when he was in a similar spot he'd forgotten how to score he thought his job well his job was when he first joined the Australian 11 was to um, bat for as many balls as possible especially after the Hobart debacle which doesn't feel like such a debacle anymore does it really when they got bowled out for Soddle <laughs> by, by South Africa um, back in November 2016 the week, the week that Donald Trump was elected I'll, oh I'll never forget that um, and uh, and um, when he went to India as well the, the message was much the Donald same Donald Trump went to India yeah well yes I, I, I doubt it <laughs> Not really his kind of country, uh, but um, the, uh, the 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 Renshaw storyline so far yeah. has mostly been about how slow he bats. But yeah, he's showing here he can go through the gears. We saw him make a century in a session for Somerset on a green top back in May when he was flying them. So um, yeah, there's been comparisons to Matt Hayden tall left-hander from Queensland of course is going to be mm-hmm. um, and hopefully at some point he gets another opportunity especially when you look forward to um, the 2019 Ashes series which he looks purpose-built to contribute to. Usman Khawaja an interesting one for me and in he's coming into this series as without any doubt he's he's the stud batsman he's the number one he, yep. he has to be the one to carry the weight make the bulk of the runs lead the side he's got the opportunity to do that um, but it's whether that that slightly diffident sort of um, form that he's had at times over his career will will come down on the side of um, the, the guy who made that epic hundred in Dubai, or you know, the, the one who's made some of those uh, less convincing sort of innings. We can read a lot into the way that players communicate through the media. God knows we do. Um, make a lot of it often. How chilled out does Usman Khawaja sound at the moment? He talks over the weekend about, oh, I don't mind if I open the batting or bat three. I'll be equally. Um, satisfied with either. Um, it seems as though every time he's opened his mouth since that 100 in Dubai, and that is in contrast to South Africa. I remember mm. we sat down with him and a few others in that Port Elizabeth test yep. match around about that mark of the tour. Just after that test, yeah. And, and he was far from cool. He, he was very prickly. Yeah, to say the least. And and that was even the case in the Australian summer. He made the, the 100 at the SCG and he, and he, and he came out and, and you know, 
you'd, you'd expect a guy who'd made a defining hundred would be happier than that. Mm. Uh, that was my interpretation at the time. It's as though he felt like he had a lot to prove and back to the wall and that kind of thing. Whereas now he feels as though um, he is relaxed. He is, as you say, the number one player in the side in the absence of Smith and Warner, the number one batter in the side. I mean, yep. uh, and has a chance to be a true leader on the international stage. I think he, I think he's really looking forward to it. He's looking looking forward to the chance of being the senior player in an Australian summer. I tell you what was interesting for me is that um, I heard him. He, he jumped on commentary during one of the T20s, the Australia India T20s. Yep. The um, the the pay TV broadcaster brought him into the box and and had him have a chat for a while, and he was. Um, you know, polite, but but quite forthright with the guys, the you know very senior sort of players in that box. I'm trying to. I think it was Warren and maybe Andrew Simons and mm-hmm. somebody else. I can't remember who. Um, and they'd all been digging into Glenn Maxwell and Alex Carey a bit for playing reverse sweeps and things and saying, why don't you just stand still and, and hit the ball and stop moving around the crease? And he sort of came in and said, well, you know, with all respect, fellas, you were good players, but the game's changed. It's a different game that we play to the one that you played, and we need to be able to. We have to open up areas of the field that you didn't have to. We have to be able to do things that. That didn't exist before, and so you know, I'm sorry if you think that it's all a bit too hard that you have to adjust to it. But you know that that's the way the game's played now. It's moved on. Catch up. I loved how it got turned into a, a Warren versus Kawaja story when that was written. I mean, you know, I, I agree. It was quite bold going into that. Even though he's a, a, a long-standing Australian player, it must be quite intimidating with all those former players casting judgment upon your performance all the time, and they do carry a lot of weight. So, yeah, good on him for, for saying what he thinks and, and also building a convincing argument that the game, especially at 20-over level, has changed dramatically. Australia's got a few options to work out in the middle order. What do they do with it? They've got a couple of marshes, as, as per usual. Uh, they've got Travis Head. custom. And they've got... This uh, is the, the custom around <laughs> these parts. Um, and they've got Travis Head and they've got uh, Peter Hanscom, mm. and, who's been been making bulk runs lately so interesting to see how they're going to maneuver these things well you can be pretty sure that marsh and marsh are inked on the team sheet just based on the fact that sean marsh made a truckload of shield runs as i foreshadowed on the last time you recorded the podcast by the way he made about 12 runs in the whole series against pakistan maybe that's doing him maybe that's flattering him uh, and but we both said at the time there's nothing surer than him blowing the doors down at shield level and fair play to him as well for doing that he's deserved his spot in this first test match and mitchell marsh to a lesser extent but um the leadership at WA, he's the vice captain. There's a mm. different conversation around him. But when it comes to Head and Hanscom um, to evoke the Spice Girls, who are back in fashion, where two becomes one, they, they can only find um, room for one or the other. One's left-handed, one's right-handed. Um, one's considerably younger. Not considerably younger. Head might be three years younger than Hanscom, but they both are seen as long-term players in the Australian eleven, like They'll play a lot more test cricket together than they, than they will apart. You would think they see Head as a, a long-term potential captain. Peter Hanscom's leading the Victorian side at the moment. They may very well end up, I say, uh, the, the captain and vice-captain of the Australian team in five or Down seven the road, time. Yeah. It's not implausible. Hanscom's made runs, made 100 at shield level. Um, Head uh, hasn't had a poor start to the summer compared to some of the others who are in, who are in contention for the first test match. Of course, Head was vital in drawing that, that, uh, that match at Dubai in October as well, batting with Usman Khawaja for a period of hours. So I almost think it's a shame that one will miss out. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of both, and I, I think they've both got a, a significant role to play this summer. Um, but I reckon on balance, if Ashwin is going to play. I know that um, Justin Lang is backing in Travis Head big time, but I, I think there'll be a big temptation to play Hanscom. He's in form, he, he's right-handed, uh, and, he, and he's a fraction more experienced in what will be a blockbuster test series. Has the Australian hierarchy painted themselves into a corner in making Mitchell Marsh the vice-captain? Because that's sort of 
almost forces them to pick him perhaps at times where he shouldn't be picked. Yeah, maybe so to an extent, but I, I just don't think it'll affect selection longer term. That is to say, if, if Marsh isn't in the best 11, I don't think he'll retain his spot. That might have informed the fact that they picked two vice-captains, Josh Hazelwood being his partner in crime. So, yeah, I, I see that has got some hairs on it, but I don't think it's a massive issue. I, I certainly don't think that's why he's in the team. It might be a small contributing factor, but it's more that it's a show of faith in him long-term that they're making him feel as though he's a, he's a permanent member in this side rather than someone who might be dispensed with at short notice. You know the great thing about having two vice-captains in one side? You can sing. Vice, vice, captain. <laughs> 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 okay, we've done Spice Girls and, and, uh, and uh, Vanilla Ice yep. back to back. Okay. So we're going very nicely. <laughs> it's, uh, it's absolutely hits. Who can, of, who can ever come next? Hits of the 90s uh, here today. Well, maybe Natalie Imbruglia might get it. Well, I'm torn as to whether I can pull that off. We'll see. <laughs> um, the rest of it pretty much picks itself. Tim Payne's averaged nearly 50 since he came back in the team yep. uh, at seven. The The top four bowlers in the country picked themselves pretty quickly. Um, Hazelwood, Stark, Lyon, Cummins. I guess the question is, like, how thin are the stocks underneath that uh, if and when one of the fast bowlers misses out? I reckon they're pretty strong. I wouldn't be too concerned if a fast bowler went down this summer as far as depth. Chris Tremaine may not look like the most orthodox bowler when he approaches the crease, but he's quick and he's accurate and he takes so many wickets you can't question that body of work likewise um, Peter Suttle with his experience it stands up and um, if you want to dig a bit deeper there's some bowlers like uh, Daniel Worrell for instance who started the season brilliantly Jackson Bird I think took nine wickets in his first shield round this year he dropped away a little bit but another experienced campaigner so and um, look it's going to be 2019 before we know one way or the other um, but James Pattinson whisper it James Pattinson um, is back uh, and, and I and I am His foreshadowing. His has been fused into one it, solid piece of... Um, at long last, in New Zealand where he had the operation done. I'm, I'm predicting an alderman of wickets next year in, in 2019 from him. Really? That's that's my um, that's my very early crow. Uh, James Pattinson to go to England next year and to go absolutely bananas because the way he bowled, I watched him bowl for Nottinghamshire last year a couple of times and he yeah he's just moving the ball away from the right hander off the seam at 155 clicks you know he's pretty good at cricket where are they, where are they starting is it Manchester or Birmingham next year we're at Birmingham yeah. the Lords so the first yep. two tests uh, yeah and well we saw this year Birmingham was a was a much better place to bowl fast than it has been in mm. recent summers so with a bit of grass on the track I mean sure the idea that Pattinson will be fit enough to play in an Ashes series next year I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself he, <laughs> I think he only bowled 12 overs in, in the in the day in the Dirt Victoria had yeah. um, the week before last, so I think we're a little ways away from him being realistically up for selection. But well, I just like he, to mention his name whenever to, I can. Been known to injure himself opening a bottle of milk. You know, <laughs> yes, that's true as well. Times the, one uh, thing at a time. The unfortunate yeah. fragility. Um, but I, I guess well, the question is, what's this? Uh, what's this team taking them on? Because there's a lot of people, mm. including yourself, uh, pretty pretty bullish about India's uh, chances of knocking Australia over. But but you just, I reckon you reckon Australia going to win, don't you? You, you think you think Australia? We'll, we'll come to that. Series. We'll come to that. But you, you tell me. <laughs> you t- <laughs> I thought, given we're dealing with Australia, I think that India um, they lost four 0 in that series in the UK and. That didn't feel yeah. like the right result. Was it, was it 4-0 or was it 4-1? Sorry, 4-1. They, they, yeah. they won at Trent Bridge, sorry. Yeah. 4-1. But it felt as though it could easily have been 4-1 the other mm-hmm. way or any number of different yeah, there connotations. Yeah, there, there were at least two losses where they probably should have won, where they were you know, 30, 40 runs short. Absolutely. Uh, they, they definitely should have won at Edgebaston. They choked there. And you can make a case that they were, they were almost over the line at Southampton as well. They just needed to probably bat for another half an hour um, with Coley in the middle mm-hmm. and they would have done so. But um, the... 
The fast bowling that India brings to the country, yes, they spent uh, over 150 overs in the field against the, the Caxi. I thought, I thought the CA11 was a thing of the past, but I'm so glad. The, uh, we're gonna have, who are going to be the Caxi life members one day? That's my question. <laughs> um, will, will their memorabilia go for as much on eBay as the old Australia ATOPs? Uh, How I, many I, I games like do you have to play for Caxi to become a life member? Well, Will, Bezos, Will, Will, Will Bezisto Bisto. has played about 100 games for them. He's yeah. going to get a banner next time he plays for the Caxi. It's like the likes of like Ryan Philippe and those kind of guys. Yeah. Who, you yeah. know, just, Brother just of seem, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. seem to be in every every Caxi 11 that's ever been put up. Yeah, so, I mean, the Caxi 11 did keep them out there for over 150 overs, so you can't get too excited about that. But, I mean, Ishant Sharma, uh, there was some unfavourable coverage in, in the in the uh, tabloid press last week. And understandably yep. so, it was all factually correct. Yep. Um, but you shouldn't underestimate a bowler who's so improved as him. Yes, he looks like he's much older than he is, and we think that he is too. He debuted it. 19 or something he's only he's still 20 something or might be 30 now um he should be coming into his prime he certainly bowled that way uh in the in the in the series in england i saw this week that in the new edition of wisdom cricket monthly who of course are are proud supporters of uh of of the final word uh they uh have have gone through and charted who the best fast bowlers in the world are and the way they've done it using the crickviz data is who is the quickest most accurate and generates the most amount of variation through the air and off the pitch. And using those metrics, Ishant Sharma comes out at number one. Controversial, I grant you, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it does tell you some part of the story that he, that he is a much improved bowler. Ishant Sharma, best fast bowler in the world. It's a little bit like Leighton Hewitt, number one tennis player in the world, isn't it? You sort of go, really? Yeah, really? This is happening. That guy? Didn't he? Yeah, I know he beat David Malbandi in the, <laughs> the Buenos Aires Open. I know, I know he came, came good against... Gustavo Quentin <laughs> on a dust bowl at Ron Garrosh <laughs> where he didn't hit a single winner but just returned every shot <laughs> until his opponent just passes out from dehydration but um, yeah it seems unlikely because I guess you you know you think of the play you saw four years ago you think of or six years ago whatever yeah. it might be um, when Ishant Sharma was getting towed up, uh, you know Michael Clark making the triple and the double, and yep. from my memory, it was just Zahir Khan and Ishant Sharma bowling about eight hundred overs between them and just getting picked off at four and a half and over yeah. for the whole series. Yeah, there was definitely a um, an awkward second album for him after he came out here in '08 and picked up Ponting and bowled with that real pace. The one day is when he worked over Gilchrist, but yeah, there, there was a period of time there um, where where he did battle, but he, he seems to have he's really turned a corner. He's different now that he's the member of a band. You know, now that he's got uh, you know. <laughs> another four good fast bowlers around him, he's suddenly gone up a number of notches. Yeah, I wouldn't know who to leave out. If I was picking the Indian eleven today and you only had three fast bowlers at your disposal, and it probably will be, Hardik Pandya is injured, so they'll have to go with their best three quicks alongside um, uh, Ashwin, who will be the first choice spinner. They, I think they'll... I mean, they're not going to pick Kuldeep Yadav, are they? And, and I'd imagine Jadeja will be um, the next cab off the ranks. So if you've got your three quicks, Bhuvanesh Vakuma... Just so that we can do the... Kuldeep is your love. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> we started well. Please don't tune off. Please, please subscribe and tell your mates. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the options, Bhuvanesh Vakuma, um, you know, we, we've seen what he, what, how effective he can be with the ball moving around on tracks. So mm. Surely will... Um, suit that kind of bowling. There, there's no reason why we'll see flat tracks here this summer, given um, that Australia's comparative advantage is fast bowling. So he's probably the first picked in that 11, or first picked for the fast bowlers. And then if you've got Ishant there as well, you're picking between Jasbit Boomerah, who's legitimately quick, hard to pick up with his 
odd action. Um, Muhammad Shami, who, who's been hooping the ball around corners, one of the unluckiest bowlers I've seen. Uh, and uh, they've got one more quick out here who I can't quite put my finger on right now. But they've got uh, a group of them here together all at the same time. Oh, Umesh Yadav. Umesh Yadav, who was outstanding with the old ball bowling reverse swing mm. um, last year, certainly against Australia. So you've got options galore for, for India's quicks. And, and you, you wouldn't have said that about a touring Indian side in the past, certainly not in this part of the world. Does it depend on swing, though? Because uh, Bhuvneshwar pretty swing dependent a lot of time he's got more tricks now than he had a few years ago when it wasn't swinging but the way i look at it is okay you can talk up the indian bowling attack and they are very very good but Mm. i think how many times have i seen a really good visiting team come to australia we've all got interested we've all talked them up we've all said maybe this is the time that they knock australia over pakistan's done it how many times with a great fast bowling lineup (laughs) they come out they bowl the first three deliveries on a flat track it doesn't move at all the kookaburra goes straight on they go ah this is going to be a long summer and you know booby gets smashed for a couple of fours in the first over from a ball that doesn't deviate and the next thing you know it's four for 500 again yeah, it's a risk, no question. And there is history to back up your point there too. Uh, I just feel as though they've got something about them, though, this Indian side. I think they're well-led. I mean, Coley's a very challenging character, but you can't say he doesn't lead this side in an inspired way. He absolutely does. Um, but if he doesn't get backed up by the batsmen around him, no, yeah, but he I'm, can make all the runs he wants. Sure, but, but I'm more observing the, the, the way he seems to have that side in his grasp. Like, mm. he seems to have a real... There's something about the way he does it. Yep. Uh, that's the, he, he has the players very much so. Yeah. And so I don't think that their heads will drop or they'll be allowed to drop if they did have a day in the dirt. Um, the problem in England wasn't the bowling, it was the batting around Coley. Yes, so, yeah, well, the lack of batting around Coley. Yeah, which will reinforce why the pitchers should have something in them. So Australia will see a chance to, to penetrate early with the ball. While the ball is hard, you say the kookaburra goes soft, it probably will. But if there's grass on the track, we saw in Adelaide um, last time around, the last three or four times actually, with the day-night test matches, plenty of that, that grass cover, um, the curator... Uh, Damien Huff has said that there'll be grass on this pitch the same as it was the last couple of years. So with all those factors in mind, they, they probably won't get a better opportunity than the first Test match to get on top of the Australian bats, and then anything's possible after that. So my take is that if the tracks are dead, which they often, you know, in Australia they can be yep. pretty flat. They might not be setting out to be flat, but they might still end up pretty flat, <laughs> particularly days two, three, four. Australia's probably the best bowling attack in the world on those kind of pitches when there's not much in it because they've got the pace, they've got the bounce, they can generate some menace, you know, mm-hmm. during the 2017-18 Ashes. There was barely a pitch in that series that was good to bowl on, and yet the Australians were able to uh, take 20 wickets in everywhere except for Melbourne when it was absolutely dire. Uh, aside from that, they're it able to... It was a shit heap. <laughs> it was. Uh, the technical ICC rating was uh, a shit heap. If it had yes. been in the Olympics, it would have been un heap de mer. <laughs> um, Jacques Rogue would have uh, come in and given his assessment. But they, So they've got bowlers who can win on a shit heap. And they've got... I think, you know, Australia's batting is weak at the moment, absolutely. But if, if a sort of mid-level... Shield batsman is going to make runs anywhere it's going to be in a home series in Australia. And and this is the kind of place where Manus Labashane could make a Test 100. It's the kind of place where Marcus Harris could very easily make a Test 100. Aaron Finch could make a Test 100, which they probably wouldn't do if they were batting in England or if they were batting on the subcontinent. Yeah, which is why I think Harris was a great pick. So Harris has been playing on these pitches. He hasn't had as much experience around the world as a lot of his colleagues would have. Um, he's had to play it in two states. He's had to succeed. He didn't succeed in Perth, let's be honest. And Justin Lang has uh, reflected on that in the last couple of weeks, saying that he was mediocre. And, and, and as Lang has said himself, you look at his numbers and 
That's precisely what they were. But coming to Melbourne, yes, true, a flatter track for test cricket. But traditionally in the last couple of years, a pitch which has done a fair bit, certainly early in the year, and that's when he's made the bulk of his runs. So, uh, look, even if there is some movement to be dealt with early, Harris is probably the best person you can pick in the country right now, having played a bunch of shield cricket, done well against the moving ball. And I've never felt more simpatico with Justin Langer than when he was talking about that, when when various elements of the media were trying to play up that there was some sort of feud between Harris and Langer, which there absolutely isn't. That might have but, been me. I can't know for sure it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They were asking, I say a lot of things. Well, they asked Langer about it in a press conference, and he said, well, yeah. he goes, look, I said he was mediocre because he was making 20-odd every time he went out to bat. That's what mediocre is. And it is. There's a, there's a, a complete inability to use an honest adjective to describe anything or anyone without it becoming blah blah slams this guy yeah nobody's slamming anybody it's just uh if you don't make that many runs in cricket you're probably mediocre yeah it it was a it was a a very it was it was a probably the most convincing thing that langer has said i mean it it did great social media numbers i I noticed as well i put out the clip and got retweeted a gazillion times which it seemed to marry up with what people want from justin langer which is which is straight talking the old straight talk express um which is for a lot of the time he's been in the last few weeks i saw andrew Wu did a interview with him in the fairfax papers over the weekend and there was a there was a lot of that again um a lot of that throwing himself out there at the mercy of the australian public not all of it really resonates with me personally some of it does some of it doesn't but that's kind of the thing isn't it he is chalk and cheese or sorry he's marmite as the english would say he you you know, there's some things which are going to jag. Um, I'm, I'm never going to be able to properly get my head around um, anything that elite honesty or anything remotely like it. But, but he can. I mean, it kind of reminds me of that. And I think I wrote this about something else recently, like that episode of Breaking Bad where Saul Goodman is talking about the fact that he convinced a woman that he was Kevin Costner and it worked because he believed it. Like, I feel as though there's a degree of that with Justin Langer. Like, the, the people, the people around him believe it because it's clear that he buys into it. it it's. It's not, it's not fraudulent. It is authentic. Mm. And like him or loathe him, uh, and that's not our job to like or loathe as, as commentators or as journalists, in my view, by the way. It's our job to assess what they say against a set of criteria and judgment and all the rest of it and, mm. and, 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 and you know, almost play every ball as it comes. But if you're looking to put him in one category, like or loathe, I, I think it's hard to do. To my mind, it, it's a bit Hillsong Church. Just because you can convince people to believe in it doesn't mean they should. It doesn't mean it's good for them uh, in the long run. So in that sense, yeah, the the, the elite honesty and the um, true blue digger battler Gallipoli stuff. It, it, well, that's never going to work for you and me, though. But we're not playing for Australia. And this is kind of what I have to remember all the time. Remember when we were talking to Adam Voges about this in South Africa, mm-hmm. that his view was that Langer was brilliant at WA. Yep. Brilliant. Well, Adam Voges does the results back him up. Yeah, but Voges never has struck me as the drinking his own bathwater kind of cat. He's a very straight-laced fellow. He tells you what he thinks. He thinks a lot. Um, if someone like that's arrived at that conclusion, being in the dressing room, I take that as a more important input than what we think from the comparatively cheap sheets. Like we, we get a good bite of the cherry with Justin. He's quite forthcoming and, and lets us kind of critique him and, and observe him and all, and all the rest of it in the usual way. But I don't feel as though we are as well-placed to assess him as, as the guys that play for him. And, and they seem to love him. They seem to love him. Well, we're going to see what they can do in Adelaide in a few days' time when we get over there. But uh, we should probably get on to part two of the final word. Why not? The 
This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon ahead of the first test match. And as we've just looked forward to Adelaide, we're now going to look back at the last six to nine months, Jeff. And as we mentioned off the top, you spent the bulk of that time writing a book about what went down in Cape Town. The last time we spoke at length about this topic was in Johannesburg. We were on a roof, exhausted. Uh, I think it was about one in the morning. Um, I think people could hear us opening beers as we were talking at the time because <laughs> we were certainly getting through a few beers as we needed to self-medicate after the week that was. But, I mean, what we weren't able to do in that chat because so much has elapsed is make sense of um, mm. how it was all going down. We were part of it then. Now we've had a chance to step back and evaluate that. And, and, and I guess that's mostly what you've been doing, isn't it? Making sense of it and trying to transition from um, being part of the experience to stepping back and, and trying to uh, work out what it all meant. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways it was, um, you know, having come through something that was such an intense period of time, I, I kind of, I did need some time to process it. And so writing the book was kind of, um, it was quite welcome really because it allowed me to, to digest everything, to, to sort of lay it all out in front of me and look at it and say, well, okay, what, what the hell actually went on mm. um, in a way that was a bit more complicated than just looking at the events of, of that week or that month, uh, which were complex enough in themselves. Um, yeah, it, it was interesting. It was kind of an accidental book because I'd initially agreed to write a book on the Ashes, on the, the 1718 Ashes series, which was just going to be a nice, happy little like, hey, Australia won the Ashes. Wasn't that nice? <laughs> Sean Marsh made 100 in Adelaide. It was good, wasn't it? Yeah, it's good. Um, which, to be frank, wouldn't have been that interesting. Um, but it, it wasn't supposed to be a, a great literary work. And I said to the publisher in January, why don't we wait till after the South Africa tour? Why don't I go on that tour? Just just in case anything really significant happens that needs to be incorporated <laughs> into the story. And and they were yeah you know, they were supportive. They sort of said, oh, you sure you need to? Oh, well, all right. Yeah, if you go on then, we'll, we'll start when you get back. Um, yeah, got a call about halfway through the Cape Town test saying, so about that book um, and then got home and it was like okay we're writing a completely different thing now it, it's got to incorporate the ashes because that's part of the story but it's a much broader story to tell and so um, yeah and then it was just a matter of okay you've got three months until the print deadline sit down and hammer through it yeah before we interrogate some of those storylines how did you feel having to go back through it so quickly after the event I know personally I found it pretty tough to immediately go back and answer a lot of questions when I got back to London everyone wanted to talk about it and I almost wanted to do anything but that. Uh, in fact, I only really engaged in it again when I was reading your manuscript chapter by chapter when you were sending it through to me, but you didn't have that luxury of waiting. You had to immediately sort of take the bull by the horn, so to speak. Yeah, it was marginally terrifying because it was basically, um, okay, you need to have a, a manuscript through by sort of mid-August and because it's got to it's got to get prepped, it's got to get typeset, it's got to go to mm. print, uh, all of these things in order to come out in around October and, and be out before the next cricket season. So what I did have was about three weeks. So I got home in April and spent the first three weeks at home just talking to people rather than, as it listening to people rather than mm. me telling them. I went and did a bunch of interviews with um, with various sort of, uh, with first-class cricketers, with people who were around the cricket scene, went up to Sydney and spoke to a bunch of people there um, and and really asked people their take on things and listened and, and got a bunch of different perspectives uh, from people who some had been involved, some had been watching on at home, some had been involved with previous iterations of the Australian team. And, and through all of that, uh, was able to get a bit of a broader sense of how people, how a broader subset of people looked at what had gone on. So the... Shorthand for Gideon Haig's book, which is also an outstanding piece that I encourage people to read, was that it was the the alternative 
culture review while Cricket Australia were writing their yep. official version that he was writing the unofficial version. And your book fits into that slipstream as well, really, doesn't it? In the sense that you, it was such a small event. Like people can question, how can you write a book on such a, a small thing in relative terms, an event which took place over about 10 minutes um, in Cape Town in March, but you use that as a filter to write a much different kind of story. Yeah, to, to a degree, it fits into that because part of it is that review but but a big part of it also is just the story itself is fascinating and so mm. what I was able to do you know that Gideon wasn't uh, able to include in his book was having having been up close having seen what happened on the ground and and sort of having been in the middle of it in a way so that so that I can tell people the story of what it was like to be in the middle of that maelstrom um, and what went on on the ground he's got better contacts than I do in the cricket world. He's got, um, you know, more direct links to, to people in positions of influence. So he's able to give a more um, detailed sort of granular um, lawyer's analysis almost of what went on. Mm. I wasn't exactly trying to do that. I was partly just trying to tell what I think is a bloody fascinating story and also a really weird and kind of in some ways very funny and bizarre story because there were so many bizarre elements of it. But for me, it was the version of the story that I would tell someone at the pub across the table. It was, what's the most interesting, entertaining version of this story that I can tell you? I'm just going to do that and, and take the brakes off and not worry about uh, whether I'm being a bit too loose or a bit too personal <laughs> or whatever it was. I just went for gold. Um, and I think it worked because it's, it's, here is a story that basically no one else was there. There were only half a dozen of us following the yeah. tour over there. So in terms of having, being on the ground and having that close-up experience of it, that's something that I can offer people. Yes, yeah, so it was more a companion piece to Gideon's, like a first-hand mm. impressionistic account of, of what we Mine's got more witnessed. jokes. I'm confident about that. <laughs> more sweary as well. Uh, if, if <laughs> most of it's not mine, it. actually. It's no, a, it's most of it's in quotes. <laughs> the, the chapter that, that stood out to me as being almost a retelling of us being at the pub um, is the chapter on David Warner. So mm. you name chapters after the the, the, uh, the Christian names of the, of the three uh, Sandpaper Trio members. So Cameron, Stephen, David. And I felt like you did a great job of synthesising a conversation that you and I have been having together for... We've had about se- 83 times. Several years. Yeah. And, and, and I truly believe it. Like yeah. when, you know, it, the way in which you got Dave over a period of time, and I think we both feel like we've understood him a bit better than perhaps the... The, the the simplistic mm. uh, interpretation of he might have you think i.e. he's a he's a run machine hero and it doesn't matter what he does alternatively he's um he's the you know the worst human being to ever step foot on the earth of course neither of those two extremes are anything close to the mark there's yep. a, a lot of gray area and perhaps more gray area with him than anyone i've ever met in my life he he feels like the most complicated human being i've had the 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 uh the ability to, to interrogate and, and the thing is it's not just about the cricket either it's not just oh he makes runs and he's successful it's that he can be the most generous, thoughtful, considerate, um, yeah. loving person. You know, he, he's got all of these characteristics and possibilities and, and he can be reprehensible. So he can be all of these things. He can be both of them at once. Yeah, that, and that's really well spelled out in, in the podcast interview we did with him on The Final Word back before the, the Durban Test match. Like he can and he does have that ability to be mindful and considerate and he wants to give something back to the community where he grew up in. And um, you do a good job, I think, Jeff, in, in that chapter of, of capturing that whole kaleidoscope of, of colours and, and, and giving him a fair hearing. Uh, and it's not to sort of say he's one thing or the other. Well, it's not. I'm not trying to convince people no, of either because right. I don't know what I think. Precis- and that's the best oh. bit, isn't it? You said that he could read the chapter. I think you put in there, don't you? There's a line in there to the effect of he might read this and think it's absolutely spot on or, or, or it's complete bullshit and how could you know? Or he might think both, you know, depending on the day. He might think either. Um, yeah, it's... 
it's really just a, a broader part of the fact that there's there's so much more complication to the story. So the book's not entirely looking back at what happened before the sandpaper incident, but there is so much detail looking back. When I started going back through it, just to, just on you know so many big questions: was Australia ball tampering before that? How long might it have been going on if it was? There were so many little details of things that I suddenly found. Hang on. This, this ties to this. And it wasn't sort of hidden, revelatory, you know, um, mm. uh, stuff, exclusive, explosive stuff that I've got from a particular source. But it's just looking at all the detail of events that have gone on for five or six years before this and saying, well, this ties to this. And there's a thread that links that to there, A to B, B to C, C to D. And hang on, suddenly something for, from four years previously really seems quite closely connected. So I think what I've tried to do is just lay everything out and let people make their own decisions uh, about what they think may or may not have happened. But as long as they can do that with all the evidence and information, then I'm happy that I've done my job. It's a decent way down the track now, or so it feels when we reflect on how much has happened since March or even in the last few weeks for that matter when the cultural review got handed down. Was there a concern for you uh, about the way the book was done when uh, when when so much was going on. There was so much colour and movement around the culture of you, people losing their jobs left, right and centre. Did you have that moment when you're like, geez, I might be in a bit of strife here with what I've written? <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I guess there's always that worry of accuracy writing about current events, but, you know, because I put the last words down probably in July. Mm. And, and I tried to leave it open enough to say, you know, basically, I, who knows what happens next? I don't because it hasn't happened yet. But I was aware this thing doesn't come out for, you know, a couple of months after I've put the last full stop on. So there was a bit of that concern with, but I thought the review would be out much earlier. I thought the reviews, the, the cultural reviews would be back well before the book was out. You know, November 1st was the book release date. In the end, everything landed a, a, exactly the same time. Mm. And as it happened, I felt completely vindicated because I, felt I landed it right next to the pin. What, what, I'd, what I'd done, you know, there's a very in-depth chapter on Cricket Australia and how it works and essentially what the issues with, you know, what the problems and the things that were going wrong at Cricket Australia and who were the biggest culprits responsible. And I think I mentioned half a dozen people and five of them are now out of a job mm. within, within that couple of weeks. So I, I felt like I'm, I, I think I got that pretty closely right. And basically everything I wrote was pretty closely mirrored in, in the reviews without me having the benefit of um, all of the funding and interviews that the reviews had. So. Yeah, it was, it was astonishingly accurate. There's a bit of a Dorothy Dick story I asked you there about whether it was accurate or not. <laughs> I, I knew the answer before I asked the question. Uh, but you did tap on CA and I mean, with what happened and in the circumstances, and um, do you feel as though they got to the right result eventually? I mean, that, that perhaps they, if you go back to Cape Town and, and what happened in the immediate aftermath and what may have happened then, but the benefit of the cultural review is that it happened. That was the that was the process was almost more important than the outcome, and 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 that when they kind of got there, it was not the best process, but and eventually those who needed to be held accountable were. I think they got there, but it was kicking and screaming. Um, nobody was putting their hands up. Nobody was saying, um, you know, I'm responsible for this. I'm, I'm going to hold myself responsible at an administrative level. Nobody mm. in March or April, you know, volunteered to get out of their jobs because they didn't think they were doing it very well. Everybody just sat tight and hoped that everything would be fine. So <clears throat> I, I don't think it actually is a good result. But So, you know, someone can read the... In terms of who we're talking about, Primarily, there were issues with David Peaver, who was the chairman, Pat Howard, who was the uh, team performance manager, James Hutherland, who was the CEO, Ben Amafio, who ran the, the media rights and, and previously the marketing department. So anybody could look at the book where I've pointed out these people and say, well, you know, they're all out of a job now, so what's the problem? Or so what, you, you, what, what I was talking about isn't relevant anymore. But it's perfectly relevant in that all of those people still hung on for six months 
too long by most considerations in that, or, or weren't willing to consider the fact that they might be responsible for what went wrong earlier. Yeah, well, and I think it's important to not cast them all and say all of them had to go at that exact moment. So no. someone like James Sutherland, I would say that he did the right thing in, in steering that process before um, giving a long notice period and putting a successor in place and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, you, you brought a point about the fact that the review was integral to getting there, which almost leads into the point that if not for the fact that ball tampering occurred, there wouldn't have been this review and, and the culture would have continued. I've observed elsewhere before that the size of Cricket Australia as an organisation ha- has broadly doubled in the last MOU period. I think it's a fraction more than double the amount of staff. They've gone from being uh, you know, a sports organisation to like a small government department and, and government departments have scrutiny via an opposition, whereas a big organisation, and, and, and shareholders for that matter, um, when, when you consider listed companies and so on, um, they don't ha- didn't feel like they had that same kind of scrutiny, which meant that uh, a chair such as Piva um, was able to you know, more or less bash and crash his way through, knowing that the probability of him getting skewered was fairly limited. And in the end, the, the fact that he did, I'm almost kind of surprised. I'm very surprised, um, particularly since he was so bullish about putting himself up for reappointment, got mm. a three years uh, extension on his appointment at the AGM and, yeah. and then was out a week later. So I was very surprised there was that accountability, but that required the state associations, or at least New South Wales, the most influential one, to make a public move against him. Um, and, and that's what they had to do, which is a very difficult thing to ask a state association to do if they're not the most powerful and wealthy one. You know, if, if, they're, if, if it's Tasmania or WA who are not happy with the way things are going, the state associations are the only way that anyone's held accountable at, at Cricket Australia. And they're not really willing to take CA on very often because their funding depends on keeping a good relationship. So there's a, there's a fundamental problem as you say, in that there is there is no one really whose job it is to to hold CA accountable. So it's not about what any one individual you know might have done wrong or, or right, but it's to say that after the sandpaper event happened, nothing changed. Nobody was like not a single person was held accountable, and that's that's where it's obvious that something's really going wrong. Yeah, and you could say the media have a role to play, and they certainly do, but there is a bit of like captor, captive element to it too, isn't there? I mean, mm. the fact that you've written this book, Jeff, I can't imagine you'll be getting any one-on-one interviews anytime soon, for instance. I mean, there is a, you know, there is a, there is a significant amount of power that CA have. Um, and look, even the way that that culture review was handed down, or rather not handed down, the fact that it was held back until the last minute, until Piva was re-elected, until the last possible moment, that, that was almost emblematic of that culture of secrecy and so on, which... You know, you We're got, trying you to got, control the message. Yeah, so. but you've got to hope that my sincere belief and hope is that um, in much the same way we started this podcast by talking about the Australian team, having to make a, a pretty big decision about the way they conduct themselves over the next few years, I, I feel as though administratively they have a similar decision to make. They, they probably could bash and crash their way there through. And, and when people start to um, move on from this current saga, and they will eventually, everything mm-hmm. moves on after a while, that um, the status quo will resume. Or, or they can fundamentally change the way they go about it. it it's their path to choose from Well, here. there's so much that relies on what happens next. They've got uh, the board vacancies. To me, it's emblematic of a similar issue that they just uh, you know appoint the kind of accidental interim chairman is now the official chairman, for, you know, Earl Eddings in that case, just for the sake of having someone carry the title to, to ICC meetings and that sort of thing. He'll be in place until the AGM next October. Yep. Then it'll be vacated. He's already said he wants to 
put himself up for appointment to to a permanent position. He's someone who's been on the board while everything's been going on for the been going wrong for the last few years. So why is it that it's just sort of the next person in in the line who almost accidentally got the job when Peeva was unexpectedly bumped off, mm-hmm. who who gets to move into the top job? Then who do they replace? You know, the empty seats on the board with? Is it just a matter of popping in another couple of anonymous corporate ciphers who sit on eight other boards for? banks or companies who won't question anything and won't say boo to anyone or do they go a populist route and whack in a couple of cricketers who have good name recognition probably neither of those options are good like it doesn't necessarily help just to put someone on the board because they played 40 test matches if they don't know anything about actually trying to run an organisation but equally it doesn't help to put someone in who thinks it's a business and it was telling that when they sacked Benamafio the the line in the press conference was Benamafio has left the business Cricket Australia is not a business. It's a non-profit organisation. Mm. It's never been a business. It's it's tax exempt. It's subsidised by Australian taxpayers. There is no business element. There's no profit to be made. So these are the kind of people they have working at CA, the ones who think of themselves as a corporation, um, there to make as much money as possible. And the public face will be Kevin Roberts, who stepped up from that chief operating officer, number two, mm. uh, into the, the top job, the the... The global search that we were told was going to take place extended to the next yeah. office. Now, yeah. rightly or wrongly, I mean, you know, it's a succession plan in, in many organisations and clearly that was set up for him to take over but from a long way out. But it's the insincerity of it. It was the same as the coaching appointment. We're going to have a global search far and wide every corner of the earth. And, oh, look, it's Justin Langer, who was previously the interim coach when Darren Lehman went on holiday. Yeah. That's not to say that it's the wrong appointment, but the process is bullshit. The process is not transparent and, and it's taking people for mugs. It'll be interesting to see how Roberts sets this agenda. I heard him interviewed on Jared Waitley's program a couple of weeks ago and he certainly said all the right things. I came away from that thinking this is an impressive an impressive operator. Yeah. I only, you know, we obviously followed his work closely, um, especially on the executive management team during the pay dispute last year. That was the, the main um, opportunity we had to scrutinise his performance, I suppose, from the outside yes. looking in. or lack of performance uh, in that well, instance. Well, sure, but again, even when we spoke to him on Wisdom Test Cricket, he acknowledges that that there were, that was that was poorly handled. So there has been that sort of mm. candour um, from him early on. Um, the, the question will be as to whether he can maintain that disposition or whether he'll eventually um, morph into the sort of um, chief executive who who uh, who doesn't care an awful lot for criticism and just bashes through. So I don't know. I'm I'm willing to give him a a, a clean start. I think as mm. journalists, that's our that's our. Um, obligation is to judge him on what he does rather than our preconceived notions. There is that slightly philanthropic way of, of looking at it, but there's also you know what he was involved with beforehand where he was very much um, happy to do David Peaver's bidding and follow the party line in every single way when he was running the pay dispute and so on. So there, are, there there's a history there that is not... Um, uh, it's not encouraging, put it that way. So I'd, I'd already be on a, a relatively high alert. Uh, <laughs> it's it's almost it's taken a once in a generation absolute stuff up for Cricket Australia to make themselves accountable to the public in in a way that they've been completely refusing to do until they were forced to by this, the sandpaper controversy. And and almost last but not least, due to the way it's taken over the media cycle in the last couple of weeks, we talked about culture war um, earlier in the podcast, but to return to that, um, the Michael Clark commentary last week and Jared Waitley's response and Clark's response to that and so on and so forth, um, that wasn't a bad, uh, a bad uh, microcosm for the conversation that's taking place, was it? In, this, in as far as Clark summed up the view of a lot of former players and a lot of those who watch Australian cricket, which is that, all right, hey guys, time to get on with it. We've got to win some bloody games of cricket. Um, and and um, the way Clark's comments were interpreted was that 
um, you know, how he said, we're not going to win shit to use his nomenclature if we don't um, uh, play the way we used to. I mean, I'm, I'm probably not being fair to Clark there. There's a fraction more nuance to it than that, but not a lot more. Uh, and then Jared Waitley's response, which was, hang on a second, why do you need to um, sort of reflect uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the past to find a way through to the future? There, there seems to be a disconnect between um, that and what we're hearing from Tim Payne and so on. And Tim Payne's response to Michael Clark was instructive as well when he said that we don't want to be liked by other teams, which was Clark's assertion. We want to be respected by them. So... Hmm. Um, well, I've always felt more that he said we want to be respected by our own supporters. Yeah, well, respect. We, they want to have respect. Full, full stop. I mean, I've always kind of felt it's a, an interesting Venn diagram, uh, mm. an interesting group of people who um, who were very supportive of the way Australia played at their hardest edge, um, who equally were the first people I wanted to see Steve Smith and David Warner. Um, hung, drawn and ported mm, mm-hmm. uh, back in March, who now want to see Australia wins a bloody game to cricket. Like, I, I feel as yep. though that might be roughly the same group of people. They've just got very loud voices. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure whether there is a, a groundswell for one thing or another. I think people have got a fairly open mind. They want to see Australia win, but they also want to be proud of the side. If one theme came out of the culture of you, it's that we do accept most people who follow sport accept this as having a, a special a special place in, in our in our nation's conversation. The Australian men's cricket team, uh, for better or worse, does have that primacy. Uh, and, and we want to feel as though it's a team that we can be proud of, not just what they do on the field, but the way they conduct themselves in and around the game. Uh, and look, how that can be married up with their on-field performance and how they can perform or how they can win or otherwise. Um, I think all of that is up for debate right now. And I, and I think when you kind of get too stuck in your corner, mm. um, that, that's, when it, that's when the conversation can deteriorate. I think there's just a weird conflation between... Uh, the way players conduct themselves on the field and the results they get on the field. Mm. If Australia had rolled through their, that one-day series against India, against South Africa and the T20s against India and won everything, acting exactly the same way on the field, no one would have had anything to say about it. The fact that they lost suddenly means you've got Michael Clark there saying, oh, these guys are being too, too conciliatory, too nice, they're, they're yeah. trying to be liked. I don't want to be liked, I want to be respected. So in his mind, you can't really be both. He sort of said, oh, ideally both, but if you can only have one, which really means that he thinks that you, know, you can only be respected for being hard, tough bastards, or you can be liked and that it's one or the other. There's no reason why a team can't, behave in a reasonable manner on the field, be decent to their opposition and still be bloody good at cricket and win. Well, this, this, was, the, this was the experience in India last year. And I mean, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a trope now. They always reflect on that Border Gavaska series last year. And so that's when they had it right. But that's when I feel like they did have the balance right. That was bloody hard cricket. Uh, and they performed well above expectations. But um, as Darren Lehman, the coach at the time, said... Um, he was getting used to them performing in a way that was different to the 13-14 Ashes side who were yeah. hard as nails and had a, had a point to prove, wanted to beat England up. Yep. This wasn't that. He said their personalities weren't suited to that. Uh, they, they weren't the same kind of fellas. And you and I both um, foreshadowed before the Ashes last year something similar, and we were both wrong because they, they almost had it foisted upon them. Yep. Uh, and, and, and that was also a finding of your book. That, yeah, that, that, that basically there was explicit instruction and intervention mm. from an executive level in Cricket Australia saying we need someone to go out on the field and be as unpleasant as possible to England because Matt Wade wasn't in the team. So David Warner was asked to play that role. Um, And, and, you know, he did it with balls to the wall as he does basically everything else in his career, (laughs) uh, full enthusiasm. But it was something that he was encouraged and instructed to do. And it's been put to me that there's still a part of him which can't quite compute that something that was asked of him was completed, that he's playing the way that he did over a period of time. And yet he's been held to such... 
uh, he's been held to account in such a way for it in as far as he may not play for Australia again. Like mm. that's a, I mean, you know, that, 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 that's, a, that's an interesting interpretation of it. But you can get that too. Like if you have been given those sorts of instructions that you talked about in your book. If you've never been pulled up, if you've been yeah. given a licence, if, if people have subtly said, oh, I love the way you go about your business, you know, push, go as hard as you can. And then suddenly they're saying, wait a minute, that's too far because you got caught on camera and now, you know, now it's all going to be on you. But that interesting contradiction you have with the culture thing is that, say, people will talk about the 13-14 Ashes whitewash. Oh, Australia, yeah, they were hard bastards. They were savage. They got stuck into England all summer. They did because they were winning. Because on the second day of the series, Mitchell Johnson beat the shit out of England with mm. the ball. And suddenly everyone followed him through the breach and they were yapping and getting around the English batsmen and intimidating them and so on. Do you know when Australia wasn't doing that? Three months earlier in England when they were losing heavily <laughs> and handsomely. They were very quiet on the field. Michael Clarke was very respectful and reasonable in his press conferences. And nobody was saying, oh, yeah, we're going to get out there and sledge them and be hard bastards because they lost 3-0. So there's this absolute fiction in people's heads that um oh so when we sledge and we're aggressive we win and when we don't we lose it's the other way around when you're losing you don't sledge because you're losing if someone's on 250 against you you don't have much to say to them but if you've got a team six for 30 you're probably pretty vocal at that point yeah it's a theory that's been advanced by sam perry from grade cricketer fiction in his view and mine as well that the harder and more aggressive and more obnoxious you are the better you are at cricket but it's actually the other way around. So there's not actually a cause and effect relationship one way. It's a cause and effect the other way. But somehow we've got it backwards. In the Australian mindset has totally inverted this. Uh, correlation and causation. That old... That old <laughs> how many people did... That old chestnut. How many people did Osama Khawaja sledge when he batted for 10 hours in Dubai and threw a heat stroke and made one of the great hundreds in Australian test history? Do you reckon he was sledging Yassir Shah every ball? No. Shit ass, you can't bowl. You suck. <laughs> no. He was pretty quiet from all I could hear. That seems like a pretty good point to jump off the merry-go-round, Jeff. Steve Smith's Men is the name of your book. Bit of a tongue twister there. But that uh, that is uh, found in all the usual places and it's doing really well. So um, please get out there and support it. and it's buy all it over from... the joint. Someone told me they saw it in Costco. There you go. That's all you, all you <laughs> need to know. Four bucks. So go to Costco <laughs> and, and pick up um, Jeff Lemon's book. The, the cover is pretty creative as well. Yeah, it's um, a little sandpaper flourish on the cover, which um, the book designers did beautifully. We, we mentioned it as a joke in the production meeting and they said, leave it with us. <laughs> um, so there is, there is honest-to-God sandpaper on the front cover. I had an absolute ball reading it. I'm sure you will as well. It's the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon and we're leaving the MCG car park and we're on our way to Adelaide. A, a day test in Adelaide. No, no day-night stuff after a few years of the, uh, the nocturnal variety. Yeah, I'm sure the members at the back of the Adelaide Oval will, will add a, at, about, at the back of Adelaide Oval, sorry, not the Adelaide Oval. If, if I can stress to our listeners one thing. Is this, is it is. This, Andrew Faulkner, our colleague from the this. Australian newspaper, is, 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 uh, is always the man running this argument, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to further it for him here. It's Adelaide Oval. There's no the. So maybe that'd be one thing you can learn from the final word today. I think you can also describe it as the it's it's an oval in Adelaide. It's don't the biggest do it, one. Don't do it. don't get into a fight with Andrew Faulkner. I mean, just don't, grammatically speaking, you can say <laughs> it is the Adelaide Oval. It's the way it's it's maybe to distinguish it from a different. It's the Adelaide Oval, not another oval in Adelaide. No, that's true. As in, are you the Adam Collins? Oh, you know the Chad. Yeah, the Chad was great. <laughs> just to distinguish from all other Chads. Well, the Jeff Lemon and the Adam Collins mm. will be at. 
Adelaide Oval for the Test Match this week. And we'll talk to you afterwards on the final word to tell you how it all went. So be sure to, Jeff, as ever, subscribe and, and um, do as people do to support a podcast. Yeah, leave a, leave a review somewhere. Uh, just write one on a piece of paper and put it on your fridge if you want. Someone might see that. That's old school virality. Or uh, leave one on iTunes or whatever it is. Pass the word around. We'll be here all summer and beyond. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. Thanks for your company. We'll uh, talk to you after the Test Match. Sorry if I ran out to empty wrote this, so you know what I meant here. I had to go.